From the Kennan Institute in Washington, D.C., welcome to Kennan X, a podcast on our never-ending quest to understand Russia, Ukraine, and the surrounding region. I'm your host, Jill Doherty. I first visited Central Asia in 1972. My twin sister Pam and I were guides on a U.S. information agency exhibit in the old Soviet Union, and we had two weeks on our own between exhibit cities. We wanted to see parts of the Soviet Union that were most different from European Russia, and we certainly found it in ancient and exotic Central Asia. The crossroads of peoples, cultures, and knowledge stretching from China in the east through Afghanistan to Persia to Russia across mountains and deserts and steppes crisscrossed by the ancient trade route, the Silk Road. Pam and I visited Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, and Kazakhstan, at that time Soviet republics. But there are now five independent countries, each with its own languages and cultures, food and music, and politics. I never lost my fascination with Central Asia, so I was very glad to learn of a new research organization that focuses on the region, the Oxus Society for Central Asian Affairs. We're particularly interested in situating Central Asia within the rest of Asia, so emphasizing its connections with the east towards China, Japan, Korea, and it to the south towards Afghanistan, India, Pakistan, rather than placing a particular emphasis, as is usually the case on its relations with Russia. That's Edward Lemon, president of the Oxus Society based in Washington, D.C., I spoke with him and with Bradley Jardine, a research consultant at the Society. Their fantastic website has several very cool tools for analyzing data, including the Central Asia Arms Flow Map that visualizes the transfer of military equipment in Central Asia from 1991 to the present. But we began by checking out its interactive protest tracker. I'm really interested in this protest tracker. It has a data set of protests all around Central Asia. Can you tell me, Edward, how this came about and what can we learn from it? What are the patterns? We're very interested in mapping some of the changing protest dynamics within the region. Obviously, within Central Asia in the past five years, we've seen a lot of changes. We've seen the death of the first president of Uzbekistan, Islam Karimov, and the new president of Uzbekistan, Shavkat Mirziyoyev, charting a new course for the country and gradually opening it up. And in Kazakhstan last year, we saw the first president, Nursultan Nazarbayev, resign, and his replacement is the new president, Tokayev, taking over. And we were very interested in the ways in which these different changing political dynamics within Central Asia, as long with geopolitical developments such as the continued rise of China's role in the region, were shaping resistance and protest within the region. So this is what motivated us to start to dig into and map different protests in the region over the past three years, so back to January 2018. And we collected the data using open sources and mapped over 1,100 protest events that have taken place across the region. 
mapped them by different issues, such as whether they were responding to property issues or labor issues or responding to China, for example, mapped them based on the sort of protests, be they sit-ins or cases of riots or rallies, and also mapping who was being targeted by these protests. Was it local government? Was it individuals? Was it organizations? So together, we get an idea of where protests are taking place, what sort of protests are taking place. And physically, it's a very interesting site because I was clicking around on it and you can actually go to the map. You can find, let's say, a red mark, which denotes one particular type of protest. And if you click on that, you can actually go to the village where it's taking place. And then you have that entire list, as you mentioned, the reasons, when it started, et cetera. It's really fascinating. Bradley, you're a research consultant. When you use this, what are you looking for? Are you looking for discrete protests in certain places or bigger picture issues? A bit of both. We are taking into account by looking at local media sources. So we're using mainly Russian language sources, but also supplementing that with local languages, including Kazakh, Uzbek, Tajik as well. As you mentioned, we look at not only the specific villages and towns and localities in which the protests are taking place, but also the buildings. So this types in with the type of actor we're looking at. Oftentimes it's local governor's building, sometimes the office of the town mayor or even individual factories where labor protests are taking place, or different facilities. We mentioned things such as anti-China protests. You'll see sometimes that there's unrest occurring outside, for example, a gold mine or some other form of extractive industry facility where the protesters are gathering. So you can really look at broader macro trends across the region. What's interesting as well is by mapping out the protests, you get a sense of the political geography of the country. So not only are these protests concentrated in traditional urban spaces like the capitals, but a lot of them are taking place in small townships and villages as well, often connected with environmental issues. So we can really start to think about the geography of the countries, whether it's looking at urban-rural divides and traditional splits like that, or even looking at terms of looking at how environmental protests shape up across the region, kind of commonalities between the different regions where these protests are taking place. And then the data are coming from where you mentioned the media, but are there other sources? We're mainly using local media reporting, so local news outlets supplemented by Radio Free Europe's local language services. But we're also trying to use more new media, so social media accounts, and we're trying to track because there's a big gap between reporting on issues and what's being discussed in social media. So often the media has to take just sizable protests into account, things that are so-called newsworthy. But actually there's a lot of other protests taking place often fall under the radar. So these are sometimes picked up by users on social media, and sometimes they're just not picked up at all. Looking at government-issued data for how many protests were registered in Kyrgyzstan last year, for example, we found that we've only mapped something like 20% in total. The total number that we've accumulated for a combination of local media reporting as well as social media accounts has only managed to flag up 20% of these. So we can create broad trends and a sense of what's going on in the region, but there's still a huge gap in available knowledge. Edward, if you look at the former Soviet space, you have three countries that are undergoing some type of conflict, either societal or perhaps actually kinetic conflict. Belarus, Nagorno-Karabakh, 
and Kyrgyzstan. Now, I'm presuming you're going to say that they are discrete individual cases, but do you see any similarity at all? And if you do not, what are the factors at play in Kyrgyzstan? Well, I think there are certain commonalities potentially between the case of Belarus and the case of Kyrgyzstan insofar as both of the protests that we've seen in Belarus and in Kyrgyzstan have been related to contested election results. But beyond that, there certainly you couldn't say that there was really a process of copycatting from the Kyrgyz side, whereby they were inspired by the Belarusians. I think the countries are very different and the dynamics at play are very different. There's certainly a common headache and concern for Russia as it continues to attempt to exert its influence in the near abroad. What's been happening in Kyrgyzstan is there was a parliamentary election on October 4th. This was contested between 16 different political parties, so quite a fragmented political space, 16 political parties fighting for 120 seats in parliament. And the election that was really marred by vote buying, intimidation, there were rallies, particularly in Bishkek, the capital city, and these all converged outside of the parliament building and eventually turned violent after the police fired rubber bullets and tried to forcibly disperse the protests. And in the end, into the morning of October 6th, a group stormed and took over the parliament and the government building. And afterwards, we had a very anarchical situation in the country. Throughout October 6th, you had dozens of protests throughout the country, individuals marching up to local administrations and forcibly deposing local mayors and local officials, various different groups seizing local mines, for example, some of which were owned and controlled by Chinese businesses. And in response, the government nullifies the election results. So what we're seeing is a real sort of anarchical situation in which what's emerged from this is a power grab by certain groups within the country. It does sound chaotic. And of course, we don't know how all of this is going to end. But Bradley, I have a broader question about Kyrgyzstan for those of us who don't follow it probably as closely Mm -hmm. as you and as much as we should. But I had read that it was considered kind of an island of democracy in Central Asia. Is that Mm -hmm. legitimate? And if it is, what went wrong? I think there is certainly some truth to that. What I would say is, as Edwards pointed out, there's of course certain vested interests that seize the initiative with regard to these protests. So we've seen a lot of common past trends. We've seen a combination of looting, the seizure of assets by criminal interests. Even the outcome looks likely to result in the re-emergence of a solid state crime nexus in the country. However, there really has been a genuine democratic undercurrent in the political trajectory. I think the events of the past year have really brought this to the fore. One thing to bear in mind would be that all of this has taken place with the backdrop of COVID-19, which has really exacerbated the economic crisis and it's ravaged the country's healthcare system. So over the past year, you've really seen horrifying images of people dying in front of overcrowded hospitals. And these have spread on local social media. So there's been a lot of anger and public unrest about how the government has handled the crisis. It's been seen that there's been a weak state And filling that void of weak governorship has been genuine re-emergence of civil society, whether it's volunteers acting to sew PPE equipment, donating money to help people in need, and even just helping deliver medical equipment out to the provinces and so on. We've really seen this genuine grassroots movement that's really showed how robust civil society can be in Kyrgyzstan. There's also a big difference on previous years with the uprisings in 2005 and 2010, and that's with 
social media. The ready availability of YouTube, Telegram, Facebook, and other local media have really made mobilization much easier. So we've seen this through the emergence of, well, they've existed in previous years, but they're far more mobilized now would be vigilante groups who are guarding government buildings and factories and so on from looters, from criminal groups. So these are well organized. They're using social media to coordinate and private citizens are helping them, supplying them with food and water to make their day-to-day jobs easier. So they're really all working together, civil society. And then there's, of course, the demographic change on previous protests. We're seeing a lot more younger, politically engaged generation now, people opposed to corruption in the country. So I think that there is a lot of hope with Kyrgyzstan, where you are seeing some repetition of the old with some of these political parties that still act as vehicles for vested interests of elites. But you are seeing genuine opposition emerging who are now setting norms and setting their own political agenda. And I think that that's been a really interesting dynamic. That is. And I can see some commonality with other places in the former Soviet Union, Belarus, as we mentioned, being one of them. And COVID, a fascinating aspect of this and disturbing, of course, is that throughout the entire region, it's become a very big factor. But Edward, since you're the president of the Oxus Society, and I'll spell that just in case, O-X-U-S Society dot org. And of course, I'm presuming you named it after the Oxus River, which is the Amu Darya, and it flows across much of Central Asia. What did you want to do with the Oxus Society? It's a new organization. What's your purpose? Yeah, so Oxus Society is a nonprofit research-focused organization. I think one of the motivating factors behind founding the organization was really a desire to foster dialogue, debate, and generate new ideas and connect Central Asia with the rest of the world. So we created a community of scholars on our website. We have a expert database that you can search and you can find if you're interested in an expert on the environmental issues in Kyrgyzstan, you can search using our database, which has over 250 scholars and identify experts working in that field. So really we wanted to showcase research that's being done on the region through publications. We have a number of research reports and shorter articles that appear on our website and also try and break down some of those hierarchical relations between those producing work on the region from the outside and those producing work on the region from the inside, those from Central Asia. So really wanted to give particularly younger scholars, scholars from the region, a platform to present their ideas. So we're in the process of creating, for example, a book database, which will just have books that are written on Central Asia by Central Asians themselves. I think a second thing that we really want to do with the organization is to drive forward data-driven analysis and solution to the region's past and emerging problems and trends. So we've created the protest tracker being one example of that desire to collect data, original data, and then present it in interesting and visually appealing and useful ways. We've also created a map of arms transfers to the region, a map collected data on exercises, joint exercises, and we're in the process of creating another data set looking at migration. And then finally, the way we're framing and looking at the region, it's obviously interesting in and of itself, but we're particularly interested in situating Central Asia within the rest of Asia. So emphasizing its connections with the east towards China, Japan, Korea, and it to the south towards Afghanistan, India, Pakistan, rather than placing a particular emphasis, as is usually the case on its relations with Russia. Those are obviously important, but 
the emerging, changing geopolitical landscape of the world with, as Asian powers reemerge. We're very interested in situating the region within those changing dynamics. That is really fascinating, and you're a great resource. I think your site is beautiful physically, and then also the information, of course, is top-notch. So congratulations on that, and thank you very much. Edward Lemon, President, Bradley Jardine, Research Consultant for the Oxus Society for Central Asian Affairs. Thank you. Kenan X is a product of the Kenan Institute at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars in Washington, D.C. It's the Wilson Center's oldest program, founded in 1974 by George F. Kenan, American statesman, James Billington, historian and former librarian of Congress, and historian S. Frederick Starr. Inspired by them, the Kennan Institute's mission is to improve America's understanding of Russia and the wider region. Thanks for listening.